Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 96 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 96, we are going to be talking about some IBQ international Bible quizzing things. First, some updates. Uh, and then we'll be moving on to talk about some traditions of internationals uh, meets, both either of the past that aren't continuing or present that are continuing or maybe present that are not continuing. I'm not really sure if that's a category. Uh, and then also maybe talk about some new traditions that maybe we should start. Um, then we'll talk a little bit about the Adult Quizzing League that just had their last meet of the year this uh, of the season uh, just this past Saturday, uh, which, uh, I mean, that's been great to see AQL uh, get started up and, and run through the course of, uh, you know, our virtual entanglements. Um, and of course, AQL pretty much has to stay virtual just in terms of, you know, logistics. But what is the future of AQL and uh, what what happens, you know, next year and the years to come? Um, and then uh, speaking of virtual, I, we'll kind of dive in a little bit to an idea of a virtual district uh, for next season and talk about, well, why would we want to do that? And what does that even mean? And are there good things and bad things? And what are those things related to it about and so forth? But all that said, let's jump into our first topic, which is um, IBQ updates. So I learned uh, from Zach, I forget when, pretty recently, the last couple of days or so, I learned that there are nine teams registered for both uh, internationals meets. So both the in-person meet and virtual meet, there are nine teams registered. Now it's a different set of nine teams, uh, right? So uh, not everybody who's in the in-person is part of the virtual and vice versa, but there are nine teams registered for each of those two meets. And so, Scott, I wanted to ask you, what does this mean from your perspective in terms of team strategy, if anything, um, versus, say, a meet where there's going to be 12 teams or 16 teams or something like that? So assume that there's still, you know, prelims and then top nine brackets, but everybody qualifies for top nine, I suppose. Um, how would you see nine teams uh, versus, say, 12 or 16 factoring into a strategic set of decisions uh, for a team? Um, well, I'm not sure how deep I want to go into this because I think I might play it a lot differently and it may be better in general for people to be a little more straight up about the strategy with only nine teams. Um, but well, if there's nine teams, then prelims kind of doesn't matter, right? Well, yeah, theoretically. I mean, if we still plan on a prelim round in the traditional sense and then a, a bracket round, then yeah, I mean, prelims don't matter at all except for your individual averages. Right, right. So like the personal pride and in individual averages are definitely like factors in prelims. But in the normal internationals meet, the reality is that there there is not a whole lot that separates, I mean, it changes every year, but say team number one through team 13 or something, or team two through 11. Like there's almost, there's very little difference, right? And so if you get into the top, well, pair that reality with the fact that in the top nine, because there's not many quizzes, it is reasonably likely. And when I say it is relatively likely for a team that is not the best to win. So it is not like, oh, yeah, the best team wins 87% of the time. You know, it might be the best team wins 27% of the time, you know. Um, and so put those two things together and you your chances of winning internationals are way higher just purely making top nine than missing it and so that line is um really what everyone is shooting for in prelims you get a little bit of an energy bump from being in the top six and avoiding xyz's but in general i mean if you don't make top nine your chances of winning are zero and if you get top nine the worst team in top nine, their chance of winning is probably at least 5%, I would say. Well, maybe not. If it was completely equal, it would be 11%, right? 100% divided by nine. Yeah, yeah. But maybe roughly 5% or something, which to me is a pretty significant percentage. Like 5% probabilities happen all the time. And so in a scenario where prelims doesn't matter for that, I would just, like, the things that I would maximize in prelims are now 
well, obviously making sure that your team can implement whatever strategy you want, right? So let's say on finish the verses, you're aiming for one and three quarter syllables. Well, I would want to spend time having everyone try to hit that speed and see if they can, right? Um, But besides making sure your team can execute the jumping side of it, to me, it's just one big energy conservation and information gathering session. Right, exactly. That That's sort of my thought as well. You know, like you, you basically participate, enjoy the process, but don't put a lot of energy into it. Pace yourself, you know, at a very, very, very low pace to save all your energy for brackets, because that's where you're going to have to turn up the nozzle. And I would say like maybe shift that toward the end of prelims so like start prelims very low energy and then the last maybe one or two quizzes kind of ramp it up a little bit because you definitely don't want sort of the the cliff of low level prelim and then suddenly ratchet it up because you know you you want a little bit of a ramp up uh instead of a cliff right um but apart from that like yeah absolutely save your energy and watch what other teams are doing so that you can, and and then maybe test out a strategy or two, like, like you're testing some strategies against other teams, but at the same time you figure other teams are going to be doing the same thing, right? They're going to be watching you. They're going to be testing out strategies and also maybe holding back on some of their strategies, right? So like the information gathering is probably not super great because everybody else is realizing that the information gathering is probably not super great. So therefore like nobody's really going to be implementing any of their advanced strategies per se, because they don't want to tip their hand um, prior to the bracket rounds. So, I mean, it's, it's almost like prelims becomes purely sort of a practice scenario, right? Right. Exactly. Cause I mean, you would hope that you could gain useful information from other teams. And so to do that, I would just drastically alter what you're doing all the time and just see what that either elicits from other teams or like, if you have any sense, which are the stronger districts or teams or quizzers, you really want to know how specifically they're strong. And so if you know, this one quizzer has worked really hard on say chapter reference questions, I want to know at what speed they want to get them or watch them jump on something Um, and then see how they answer it. Because you can get a ton of information, right? You can be like, oh, they should have absolutely knew that one, and they didn't. Or that one was tough, and only someone who's put in a lot of work would know that, and they answered it without hesitating. You know, you kind of gain those little things, um, little bits of information so that you know. But you're right, it could be like uh, preseason in the National Football League, where, let's say, each team has a playbook of 300 plays, well, they might not use any of what they consider to be their best 250 in any of those preseason games. Exactly. So, they, they don't want to give it away. Yeah, exactly. It's it's warm-up. It's basically a bunch of warm-up, um, which is not bad. Um, it's just, it's very, very, very different than, um, I mean, it makes, inter- we, we talked a lot in, in you know, pa- uh, podcasts of the past about energy consumption, modulation, and management, right? And you know, at, at IBQ, energy management is probably the most, actually, it's not probably, it is the most important, uh, well, I I wouldn't say it's the most important thing that you have to do, but of any meet internationals is where energy modulation matters the most. How's that? That, there we go. That's probably the right thing to say. Um, and what we're basically saying with a prelim of nine teams that doesn't matter is that energy modulation now no longer matters as long as you don't you know use up your energy right like like the the goal is use as little as possible until you get into brackets and then flip a switch um which is weird it's very weird now i mean the this kind of brings in another question xyz's right there's i mean we already know you know, Zachary is on our side in terms of his, uh, you know, dislike of XYZs, but uh, in a nine team, you know, prelim to bracket transition, there is absolutely no point to the XYZs. So they aren't going to happen theoretically, right? Well, you said nine team two bracket, you mean nine team one bracket. There's no teams for a second bracket. Right. Sorry. What I mean is like, there are nine teams, therefore XYZs can't happen. There, There would be no point. Exactly. XYZs are specifically to let people reseed themselves and maybe switch the bracket that they're in. 
Yeah, yeah. And so uh, with one bracket, there's no opportunity for that. Um, yeah, it. the dynamic is definitely weird where nothing is real until the f- question one of quiz A and B and C, and then it's very real. Like, in essence, within an hour, um, a very prepared team could be done. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, and here's the thing. I mean, I mean, we're game theory. We're game theorizing this out here. Zach is, you know, um, very smart, and he's obviously very savvy of a, you know, a quizzer and a quiz leader, right? All of this stuff that we're talking about here, you know, Zach has probably already thought of, right? He's probably worked through a lot of this, this sort of um, the game theory stuff. So, does he consider a prelim of nine teams and a bracket of the top six? Yeah. So, I mean, that would restore almost all of the normal dynamics. And I, I'm, I think you would kind of have to have the sign off of every participating district. Um, yeah, that, that would be my push and pull if I was in charge, right? I would say this would give me as close to the same dynamic, but obviously a six team f- semis would be we- weird and different and might require some redesigning so that it's not over in like two hours. <laughs> right, right. You know, um, but it might be worth an ask because I could definitely see the districts all say that sounds amazing, you know, amazing, good or amazing, crazy. No, well, amazing, good, especially what are we month and a half out? Right, right, right. So it's like plenty of time to absorb if we do like, a oh, we're going to do a six team. And in the first, you know, the first two quizzes of, you know, maybe one, one, four, six and two, three, five happens two quizzes cumulative and then we do you know like stuff that we never really have seen before potentially um but if you work it out in advance and get the okay i think it could be really fun yeah indeed well and i mean we've got three rooms we've got three quiz masters and you know we've got um i know zach has all of his officials um, basically officially <laughs> marked uh, or, or confirmed i guess that's the word i'm looking for um and we're going to run with three rooms so three rooms nine teams uh, you're looking at, uh, you know, no buys, theoretically, right? Like you're looking at every team quizzing every slot, unless you artificially bake in like one room going dormant every so often for, for one particular quiz, uh, quiz slot or something like that, which is, you know, probably a reasonable thing to do because, you know, you'd, you you want to give people a chance to congregate and um, that kind of thing. But I mean, even with those buys, you know, artificially injected into the schedule like that, uh, you're still going to end up in a situation where, you know, quizzing isn't going to take that long. I mean, you can't do 150 prelim quizzes with nine teams. I mean, especially if it doesn't matter. Um, but even even if you say, okay, only top six, there's only so many prelims you can do before you wear everybody out. Um, so you figure there's going to be a lot more downtime um, at this meet than in other meets in the past, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that means, you know, more opportunities for fellowship, more opportunities for, you know, uh, other IBQ traditions like talent shows and so forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, even XYZ is going away. There's quizzes right there that just, you know, that's time that's quiz time that is wiped off the schedule at this point. Right. And and even though these are teenagers and not, say, 10-year-olds or 8-year-olds, I still would side, I would definitely side to have baking in breaks, probably whole time slots, maybe two time slots on, one time slot off or something. But try to have quizzing start at the normal time that it does and end at the normal time that it does, and then you bake in longer breaks in the middle. Yeah. So agreed. that everyone's not quizzing like 10.30 to 2.30, and then you just have these giant swaths of time off. Right, right. And like I um, said, I mean, Zach is a savvy, you know, administrator here. So, I mean, I trust he's thought through a lot of this stuff um, already. Uh, but it is it is definitely a very interesting world we're, we're going to be entering into. For sure. Now, if, if they stick with the nine teams' normal prelims, I would try to have my rookies quiz as much as possible. Because um, oftentimes it's difficult to get into internationals for a rookie. But once they do, they might perform no differently than a veteran um and so if you can push them early and try to reduce that um acclimation phase i think could be real good for them 
Yeah, indeed. Well, um, let's move on to talk about some IBQ traditions, um, either past or present. And I listed a handful. This is an extraordinarily not comprehensive list, um, but it's just stuff that popped into my brain. Uh, so one IBQ tradition of the past is uh, team banners. Um, so, Scott, when you were quizzing, were there team banners when you were involved? I know we did banners at least the second year of internationals that I, I'm pretty sure we did the first. So both my two years. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, and I don't recall when I was nearing, let's see, I think it was, what was it? 2006. So mid 2000s, somewhere in that ballpark, I think banners were still happening, but they were not a big deal. Like if a team didn't show up with a banner, like I don't think anybody noticed right um but at this point banners aren't really a thing anymore um of course i could be misremembering maybe some people do bring banners i'm really tired and probably forgetting something um scott what do you, do you know if they're still doing banners i feel like some teams have brought banners i haven't been at internationals in three or four years um but i think some teams have within the last like since i stopped quizzing in the last well i stopped quizzing over two cycles ago so um I think people have, and it's traditions are really, really weird because I've talked to my wife about traditions around holidays, and we we like the idea of traditions, and we think about traditions that our, our families have had, and we're like, do we want to have any of these? But traditions almost feel most special when they just kind of happen, and then you, you like a thing that you did, and you keep doing it, and then it becomes a tradition, but then it only becomes a tradition when you've done it for many years down the road. And planning traditions is is weird, right? Right. Well, and and also incentivizing traditions, right? So, like, there used to be a banner judging contest, which I think was quizzer led. So the quizzers would vote, or there maybe there was a council of quizzers elected, and they would vote on whichever banners were the best, and, and they would hand out, um, you know fun awards for the most clever banners or the nicest look banners, that kind of stuff. So that, I mean, that there was a little sense of pride there, but I mean, that is definitely waned. Um, and for some teams, you know, some teams traveling, building a banner and traveling with a banner is not easy, right? So P and W, they have to fly to Chicago and then a connecting flight to Cleveland, I think. And then they have to get a van and drive in the van from Cleveland to Toledo. And it's like, okay, you know, traveling around with a giant banner uh, in that context is not exactly easy. Um, so, you know, it's it's definitely harder than for, say, a team that just has to hop in a van for a couple of, hour, uh, couple of hours or so. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it is kind of interesting. Another another tradition of the past, um, although I, th I mean, I think we still kind of do it, is uh, uh, team uniforms. Now, team uniforms in the present day basically mean uh, T-shirts, right? So everybody gets a T-shirt with their team name, uh, maybe the quizzer's name's on the back or a slogan on the back or something like that. That's the team uniform. But in years past, these uniforms were non-trivial, right? So, you know, there were teams that would wear, you know, uh, suit and ties or, you know, formal wear, or there was a team that wore, it was almost like a, almost like a parochial school uniform uh, sort of concept uh, going on. Uh, and some of these were, you know, fairly elaborate. Now, I mean, you got to look in the in the time machine photos to be able to see some of this. But uh, some of these uniforms were were non-trivial. They took a lot of effort to put into it, and they looked really sharp. Uh, a lot of them looked extremely sharp. Uh, so it's kind of the thing of, you know, yeah, we still do team uniforms, but again, I don't. It's not, I don't think we're giving any kind of awards or recognition for team uniforms at this point. I don't know that we want to artificially start doing that. Um, but there is something pretty cool seeing a team show up on with, you know, a uniform that's not just a t-shirt, um, from my perspective anyway. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but it, you're right. It's deciding in advance on a tradition that we were going to have is, is kind of weird and incentivizing it is a step weirder. Yeah, <laughs> but indeed. All of these things, like banners or uniforms, are um, quirky can have negative connotations, but like they are decently unique to add m more fun to something, right? Because of uniqueness. So if there are other things like that that quizzers want to do, 
Um, those are things that make events more and more special. Well, I mean, some teams bring a mascot either in human physical form <laughs> with a costume or they'll bring a mascot in the form of like a stuffed animal wearing a, a uniform that matches whatever uniform they're uh, uh, doing. So like, uh, you know, international teams that don't have five people that let's say there's a team of four people, they'll bring a stuffed animal who will sit in the e empty seat or something like that. I mean, it's kind of cute and quirky and entertaining and, and that sort of stuff. And um, it's great to see that sort of, I don't know, I wouldn't call it ingenuity, but creativity um, is, is cool and it's, it's quirky and fun. And if, I mean, if, if the, the thing is, if there's a team out there right now, that's kind of thinking about like, well, what kind of uniform do we want to have and really stand out? Don't just do t-shirts, right? Like t-shirts are cool and t-shirts are great. And if you're going to do a t-shirt by all means, you know, yay, right. Um, it's better than not doing anything at all. Um, but maybe step it up a level. Uh, you know, you may not, there may not be a cheesy fake award for you to win, but it'll certainly cause you to stand out and, you know, in a very positive way. So I mean, it could be kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, one year we got plain t-shirts and then got puffy paint and then worked on them for an hour during practice, you know? And so things like that can be fun. Yeah. We did hats at one point where we, um, we bought hats and we had, uh, some kind of weird glue paint thing that we drew on these hats. And I remember mine turned out to be extraordinarily ugly, <laughs> but, um, uh, but, uh, but you know, Hey, whatever it worked the year before you coached me, Griffin, we made the poor decision to have shirt and tie be our uniform in, um, Simpson, California or in ooh, Redding, California. Ooh, ooh, in July, and it w in July. And yeah. it lived up to red in California in July. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is the one major negative of any kind of uniform that isn't, that goes beyond a t-shirt. Uh, you know, when we were in Florida a couple of years ago, uh, it was like 96 or something, 98 degrees and, you know, 99% humidity or something like that. And, uh, wearing anything more than a t-shirt would have been, um, definitely uncomfortable in any context other than in a room with air conditioning. Uh, and even then probably not exactly the most comfortable thing in the world. Right. Any other kind of traditions? Well, there's the, there's the talent show. Um, I, I like to refer to this as the talent with quotes around it, uh, show, but, um, that's still a thing on and off again. Um, and that's kind of fun. It's, you know, usually like a after quizzing is over one of the, uh, one of the, one of the evenings before, you know, the championship, uh, rounds and so forth, there'll be an evening where, uh, after dinner, uh, quizzers will get up and have an opportunity to demonstrate a talent and there's judging and so forth. And that can be, that can be, you know, a fun tradition. Um, were you, did you ever participate in any of those? Um, I don't believe so. Yeah. I can't remember. Your brother probably did, like piano playing or something, right? He might have. I don't remember what happened. Yeah, I don't remember that year. <laughs> I don't remember either. Like I remember them happening, and generally, I don't remember much of what happened within them. Which I don't know if that says anything positive or negative to the tradition. Uh, but the quizzers seem to like it. They can be fun. Yeah, it's it's funny how little I remember from internationals. I mean, it was a non-trivial amount of time ago, but still, I feel like I I remember far less than I should. Yeah. Any other kind of, what are some traditions that would be fun to start like new traditions? And of course, like you said, right, you, you can't, I, I definitely would not be in favor of proposing that we start a new tradition corporately. <laughs> like, you know, like let's, let's vote on it and say, yes, we're going to have this new tradition. I think it's way more fun for somebody to just randomly come up with an idea and somebody else look at that and go, that's kind of cool. Let's do that also. And it just kind of grows from there. Uh, but what, do you have any sort of brainstorming cool ideas of stuff that might fit into that? I really don't, but I think the best thing going for quiz meets in general, but specifically internationals is when all of the quizzers from dis different districts have downtime together. And so I think keeping the schedule as sparse as you can and making it either really, really, really easy or the only option to have everyone housed in the same place or ideally in the same place that quizzing happens, you know, like at crown, um, those things, I think when people just have downtime together is when you often have lots of ideas, um, as opposed to people 
splitting up for their fun activities or where they where they um you know people are split up among hotels or um or if you're quizzing back to back to back to back to back but i don't have any other brainstorming ideas creativity is not a very strong point of mine well it may be the case that this particular internationals is going to be extremely innovative in terms of setting up new traditions because of exactly the sort of universe that you're talking about we're going to be you know nine teams we're so not a giant group uh there's going to be theoretically a lot of breakup in the schedule a lot of downtime we're all staying at the same hotel uh so i think everybody's staying at the same hotel so you know there's definitely going to be a lot of opportunities to just sort of bump into people in the hallways and start conversations and you know teams meeting teams quizzers meeting quizzers hanging out and being crazy as quizzers normally are and i I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for innovation creative innovation uh coming out of this meet yeah i agree and things change all the time and i really don't know what else to add but i mean us talking about a nine team prelims and how to make semis or or the whole meet kind of approximate a normal meet i mean there can be endless new ideas from people and you know I have yeah. no good sum up sum up for that. <laughs> what are some traditions that maybe should die? Um, how's that? And and let's not limit it to just quizzing traditions. But what are what are traditions? Uh, and by that I just mean repeated patterns that you see either in quizzers teams or officials. Like, are there things that the officials do that are traditional that maybe we should consider ending? Well, I mean, I think we've talked about a lot of the stuff with regards to officials. Um, you know, like officials that have an an air of superiority because they're an official. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> or, you, know, you know, like lots lots of that stuff that, I mean, you can argue it's not really tradition because it's not like someone just shows up with this plan to act this way, right? <laughs> Although maybe uh, they do. <laughs> perhaps. I would rather give people the benefit of the doubt and think that they're just kind of defaulting to an action that feels right for yeah, them. Yeah, true. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm a bit curmudgeonly, but I really disliked the... The high fives after every single question. Yeah, me too. They do get a bit, mostly just because it kind of throws off the pacing of the quiz. Right. But, and I mean, in my head, I always phrased it as it was this weird, like, sportsmanship posturing when really I don't know if that was the case at all. But when five members of a team from the opposite end of the stage get up after every question, it gets real tedious. But I understand the problems with, like, Oh, are we now gauging the like um how justifiable is it to give a high five? Like this person did really well or tried really hard. You know what I mean? Like Right, right. That that's a weird situation too, and I also don't want to stifle anyone's camaraderie and sportsmanship and, and you know, even if it's a, too over the top in some cases. Um but I, you know, I think there are times where it it definitely hurts flow and negatively affects quizzer performance and all quizzer performance right yeah i totally agree i think one tradition that might be fun to bring back is the pnw stomp stomp clap um but then again i don't want to mandate that to happen i think it has to happen if it's going to happen it has to happen organically which means it probably isn't going to happen because it's sort of this idea that or this thing that died out many years ago um but it it would be kind of amusing to be sitting there and and see a pw team show up and do the stomp stomp clap thing um there there was i thought the you know west can you can go 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 thing was dead and then i heard it uh i forget when i heard it but i heard it maybe it was maybe it was great west a bit ago i forget when i heard it but i i remember uh you know hearing it after many years of not hearing it and suddenly was just like oh hey i remember that cheer that's cool i thought that was dead and it was kind of cool to to you know hear it come back uh that one little moment yeah and things like that i don't know i think west can is almost the poster child for like the perfect the perfect middle ground like any more and they're probably obnoxious but it it has like heavy positive nostalgia to it you know what yeah, i mean and yeah. and it, it's theirs and it like it makes internationals feel like internationals or great west feel like great west i think that's awesome 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very much so. Um, and I, I know I've, I've heard from people who have been annoyed at that chant who are like, oh, would they please stop that chant? And it's like, yeah, I felt kind of the same way when I was hearing it every like three or four questions or maybe even more frequently than that in every single quiz of a meet or something like that. But then, you know, when you don't hear it for several years and then you hear it just once or twice or something and you're like, oh, I remember that chant like th this. It's. It's fun. You know, it's it's like, I don't know. Did you ever watch Star Blazers? Probably not. I'm probably dating myself. I don't know that. Okay. Well, it's probably, it's, it's a terrible, terrible, ter terrible cartoon um, from, I forget when, like the late 80s, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, don't watch it. I am not recommending you watch Star Blazers. Uh, uh, my wife, Sherilyn, uh, was a big fan of it. And uh, a number of years ago, we decided to watch it. And it turns out that, no, it really is not that good. We just thought it was good because we were kids, very young kids or something. Um, but, you know, there there is still a kind of, even in that show, there is kind of a nostalgia factor. So, like, you know, I wouldn't say binge watch Star Blazers, but watching, like, the intro or something, the 30-second intro of the show is kind of like, oh, yeah, I remember that show. It's kind of you know, like um, Knight Rider and Airwolf and stuff like that, where it's like, or Battlestar Galactica, the original, you know, 1979 version or something where it's like cheese ball and silly, but you're kind of like, oh yeah, I remember, you know, I remember that. That's kind of fun. I kind of like this question, like traditions that should die. Um, I mean, it sounds like Zach has, is actively in the process of killing or will kill this, this year or in past years. Cause again, I haven't been in a couple years, but it always drove me nuts how long stats took to be posted like during oh, prelims yes yes and it, and it was like you know enough people have had enough access to stats that it doesn't take that long to tabulate stats and then add like nine to 132 or whatever and i'm just i'm like is there just no interest among the you know, like every statistician that has been at internationals at updating it or like like there's got to be something that's stopping this right Right. Um, and it just blew me away because I think that's a huge part of the enjoyment. And then closer to the end, it's a huge part of the, the strategy. And I just think it was a massive, massive whiff on improving the experience. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we're using, we're using Google Sheets, uh, a, a Google Sheets solution that Zach came up with for this coming I IBQ. So we'll theoretically have very, very rapidly if not real-time available statistics um and then you know going forward into the future i think we're only going to see uh, it get better like i think we are currently at the worst it's ever going to be and everything from here is up right um so like i can imagine a scenario not very far into the future like i you know even just a year or two into the future i can envision a scenario where in real time, a coach, you know, can be in a quiz meet or and uh, or in a quiz, right? And pull pull open a laptop or a tablet or something, and look up a a particular team that they're going to face in the next quiz, and look at a particular quizzer and say like that person seems to be specializing in reference questions, and they're doing really well except on chapter nine. They've got a gap in chapter nine, it looks like, and be able to use that information to coach their team between their current quiz and the next upcoming quiz, right? That sort of data and that sort of universe of, of sort of real-time statistical information getting translated into coaching assistance uh, and then, you know, providing that to your teams is, I mean, it's, it's not far off. I mean, we have the tech to get there. Well, maybe not completely fleshed out, but we're very close to having that ability. Right. And I mean, I think in some very specific contexts, it can be useful, but in general, I don't think it is. Um, I think democratizing that information and making it widely, widely available is great because then it makes it not worthwhile to track questions. Right. Yes. And it oh, yeah. Removes absolutely. The, removes the advantage from any quizzer team or district that has a greater ability to track questions. Right. Which um, now there are things that I think are absolutely part of the competition, like um, how well you make a finish the verse or quote list, which is why I don't want a, a published list. Right. Um, and some might argue differently. 
with me on that one. But for this case, I don't think ability to track questions um, should be a competitive advantage because most often it's not quizzers who are doing it, right? Oh yeah, I totally agree. And and I would I would say like as a general principle, I would say anything that a quizzer can do on their own to prepare is something that we want to encourage. Anything that a quizzer can't really do to prepare um, or to you know do better, that's something we want to discourage. Um, with the exception of coaching, um, the the actual capability like i want i want to encourage better coaching rather than non-existent coaching if that makes sense right um but the point that i was trying to make but failed to was um i felt like i kept up pretty well on how strong districts were and i would try to find any stats the districts had as their years went along and so once i showed up internationals i had a decently good sense of which quizzers were the best from a lot of districts and so I could look at the schedule and say, ooh, our third prelim looks like it'll be pretty tough. But then when it came time for the third prelim, it's not like I was then implementing some different strategy because of it. And I wasn't like telling the team, ooh, like harder because these teams are better. Like, you know what I mean? And yeah, so sure. at the end of the day, like none of that knowledge had any impact on how we prepared our coach. And it, it might just be that like, oh, we're on question 19 and in a toss up. And this team needs a third person bonus and we want to, you know, and it's this question type coming up and we should do something very specific on it because of knowledge that we have. But outside of like that specific scenario, I don't think this knowledge is very useful, which is fine. Yeah, I mean, it may be that the fact it may be the that the knowledge isn't specific enough right so like this per this quizzer is really good versus this quizzer is just normal good is you know not exactly actionable um but if you can say well this quizzer has a hole in their knowledge on these chapters or something like that or is is cutthroat good on this particular type of question type or something like that right like that to me seems more actionable than just that quizzer is is phenomenally gooder than the average international quizzer or something right maybe so i don't know maybe maybe but but i totally agree with you i want to democratize the information so that there's no competitive advantage to, to a team that has an army of statisticians in its ranks um tabulating this information purely for their team like i want to make it available to everybody very very easily uh and a, then a coach can decide whether they want to integrate the information or not right right oh well so any I, I had I had a hypothetical that I'm having trouble phrasing in my head. But you know how you were saying, and I think we're in agreement about things that a quizzer can do to better prepare themselves versus things that a, like maybe non-quizzers can do, aside from coaching, right? Right. Um, there is no ability and no real desire, well, no real desire to prevent non-quizzers from constructing question sets and question lists and then providing them to quizzers right that's true right so everything else being equal might it be desirable to have enough turnover in either question types or rules around questions or the material version or something else that the value of that doesn't build up over time that is a very very interesting hypothetical i think in general that may there i think there is a value to having some level of rule book churn and question type churn or rules around the type churn such that that buildup is is lessened over time i think there is a positive value to the lessening of the buildup over time however i would say there is a cost to the churn right and i think the cost to the churn if the churn is purely for churn's sake is negative and will eclipse the positive value that the churn could provide so in other words i'm totally completely open and in fact eager to churn on rules to uh to to ever narrow in on ever more efficiency in promoting the mission of quizzing right getting the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses um and so churn in that it churn to you know 
ever more focus on that that mission and bring about that mission is a good thing. And because of that, a, a, a sort of um, maybe unintended positive uh, result of that churn is the you know disruption to the buildup that you're talking about, right? But I would not want to see artificial churn or churn that is not directed toward the mission purely for the you know the anti uh, buildup that you're talking about. Right. You know, like in reality, the gain is not worth doing this churn in a um, prescribed manner. But I just you know, I wonder because I I keep pretty good documents, and I just wonder if material and rule set stayed very static you know for a good period of time if i could have the best the question set that is the best approximation of what will be asked and it's this competitive advantage that i can just give to quizzers of whatever district i want you know what i mean but i'm sure probably phrasing that in way too like like the actual competitive advantage would be small if any i don't know that it would be super small. I think it would be somewhat small because it still all comes down to memorization, right? I think there is a small but measurable and not microscopic competitive advantage. But I would also say that the churn doesn't, any amount of churn would not eliminate an advantage in if there was a significant number of people or a single person who significantly invested their time in creating these sorts of things for quizzers, right? So imagine you've got a fairly large district. Um, you've got, you know, lots and lots of parents and, you know, former quizzers. And let's say there's a bunch of folks with a bunch of free time who all love quizzing because everybody should love quizzing. And a bunch of them get together and create the consortium to create a really ideal question set based on this year's rule book, right? Um, many hands make like, and many hands make light work. And so they could come up with something and it would be a competitive, a small, but, but non-zero competitive advantage for that district, right? Similarly, let's say you have a smaller district who doesn't have the ability to put a consortium like that together, but they have, you know, the, you know, the crazy person who is like just crazy about quizzing and is going to just sit down and do all of this work and then hands it over to their quizzers, right? That district would have a competitive advantage as well, right? Um, versus say a district where it was mostly a bunch of normal people, right? Um, they, they would be at a mild disadvantage to that. And I think churning the rules doesn't prevent that at all. And to top it all off, I kind of almost don't want to artificially try to combat against that, right? I, I mean, if somebody is so moved and interested in developing something like this during a during a the course of a season or really between the two seasons, so that quizzers can prepare with it, um, so much of that. Or because I mean, ultimately, like, do I really care if one district wins over another district in internationals? No, I don't. Um, PNW, you know, excluded from the equation because. I have bias, <laughs> right? Um, but like, do I care that say, you know, CMD uh, wins over Westcan or Westcan wins over CMD or something like that? I, I, I don't, not, not at all, right? What I want to see, and 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 I, what I have a, a very strong vested interest in is seeing that um, every quizzer in CMD and every quizzer in wait Westcan um, is. Uh, encouraged to memorize as much as they can, as well as they can, as effectively as they can, and to, you know, know the material better and better and better, right? And so if there's somebody in, say, Westcan who puts these lists together and puts P&W at a, at a competitive disadvantage, but this results in Westcan quizzers knowing the material better for whatever reason, right? Uh, I think that is a, that's, totally a win. Uh, it's a win for quizzing. It's a win for Christianity. It's a win for those quizzers. And I, and I want to support it. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, I don't know why I just thought of this. It might be a complete tangent, but I think it's, it's too bad in a sense, how the most giant component of doing well in quizzing is the size of your district. Um, and so we probably overplay the amount of experience or, quizzing brain that exists in the districts that c compete better. Um, but I'm always trying to think of what are things that we can do to 
reduce the barrier to competing well for smaller districts. Because if there are anything, uh, if there is anything that we can do apart from making the district just bigger, um, to me, that seems like an easy win to do. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to do anything artificial. And I mean, part of it is the just pure statistics, right? Um, you know, a larger company is going to have a larger market cap uh, and more shares to then bring their share price to uh, something a little bit more normal uh, for some definition of normal, right? Um, so like the, you know, company A's share price versus company B's share price, it's meaningless. You have to compare it against its, you know, market cap, right? Um, to get the, to the, get the concept of like, well, what does my share actually mean? And, and sort of similarly, right? So like, um, the fact that a particular smaller district is not necessarily scoring well at internationals is not a reflection on some sort of poverty of preparation within that particular district. Rather, it's a, just a natural consequence of the fact that like, well, you know, if you've got a, a district that has say 50 quizzers and you take the top five, you're taking your top 10%. If you have a district of 500 quizzers and you take your top five, you're taking your top 1%, right? So a top 10% team and a top 1% team are going to compete differently. Um, that's just sort of the, the very nature of things, right? And similarly, you could say the same thing about, um, say, high schools, right? A larger high school will tend to have, let's say if you've got a football team at a high school, which most of them do, I think, a larger high school is going to be able to have a better uh, football team on average. There's always going to be, you know, d changes to that, right? But if, if, if generally speaking, there's going to be a high correlation of the quality of a football team at a large school, um, or there's going to be a high correlation of the quality of the football team to the size of the student body, the number of people in it, purely because you're able to select um, the, the a, a smaller top level percentage of, of, of athletes, right, in a larger school, right? That's no, there's no, you know, the, no disrespect and no negative anything meant to smaller high schools that, that they're just smaller and therefore they can't ultimately compete with larger high schools. Um, it's just the nature of the beast, right? And ultimately it's one of the byproducts of the way that, that quizzing is organized. Um, and it may just be a great call to action for smaller districts to be encouraged to do as much as they can uh, and even more to recruit uh, quizzers and, and grow their ranks, right? Right. Yeah, I think we too often ascribe um, positive things to districts that do well and relatively less positive things to districts that don't when so much of the variance in competitive ability might be due to size, you know? Or right. is probably due to size. Yeah, I mean, you can have you can have the best, you know, district administrators, you can have the best district uh, officials, you can have the, the most engaged parents. But if you only have a handful of churches or even fewer, uh, there's only so much you can do uh, and you can prep and prep and prep. Um, and, you know, but there's still an upper ceiling to what you can do just by the nature of, of stats. Right. Right. I, but I think. The example that I'm kind of thinking of is within the last couple decades in PNW, there was a very, very talented quizzer who was a rookie at internationals and no one had prepared them for watching for W's. And so just about every jump they won was a W. And to them, they were like, how does this keep happening? Hmm, yeah. um, and then the next year, they also qualified for internationals and the coach taught them. And then it was like, boom, inflection point in performance. Right. And that's right. just like a teaching point that has nothing to do with the size of the district. The quizzer was basically the same year to year. Um, and the more that we can remove those sorts of barriers to results would be amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this show does part of that, right? I mean, starting after internationals, we're going to be talking about some of the basics of of quizzing uh, for folks who are rookies, and we're going to be walking through why you shouldn't jump on w Ws and so forth. So, you know, there are things that, you know, I mean, obviously we're one small part of quizzing, but we're doing something to help um, across the spectrum uh, improve quizzing. I think there's a lot of stuff that uh, everybody in quizzing can be doing uh, that furthers uh, that goal that you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. I I place a ton of value on ability to execute something and less um, 
less emphasis on ability to know that thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, well, I mean, both of us, you know, come out of the tech industry, right? So, I mean, in tech, that's all we talk about. Like, it's not about what you know, it's about how you execute. Um, execution and we I mean it's even to the idea like there are Twitter accounts that basically talk about ideas left and right um, they basically free tech ideas free startup business ideas right and people who aren't in tech or who haven't been in tech for very long look at that and go and and are, they're like why are you giving all this stuff away for free and I'm like well because the idea isn't worth anything it is entirely about the execution uh, that matters um, and yeah I think that that's a, that's a lesson that definitely transposes into quizzing very well for sure well one thing I wanted to touch on um, is uh, the you know the adult quizzing league uh, we spun it up uh, this season uh, we were virtual uh, pretty much everybody was virtual this season so the idea of spinning up an adult quizzing league uh, was entirely doable and reasonable because everybody was virtual anyway uh, I think well I mean PNW had had played around with the idea of an adult league the year the season prior uh that we did in person it was always just something fun that we did uh, i think we did like a couple of quizzes per meet uh for the adults uh, who wanted to participate and we had like an a and a b league and so forth and it was fun um and i don't think it really went anywhere but it wasn't really meant to um but then this season uh with aql uh going virtual a lot more people uh, have been able to be involved because it's been uh virtual and I have a couple of questions related to that. I mean, the first one being, you know, should it continue? I hope it does, right? Um, but then the question, and, and Scott, for you, would you consider it better for AQL to do James Romans next season? Assuming AQL continues and assuming AQL is virtual, because I think it pretty much has to be. Um, do they do James Romans or do they do, say, First and Second Timothy and Jude? Uh, or some other, I, I mean, that's just one example, some other set of, of books that are not uh, part of the, the, the you know, standard youth rotation? That's an interesting question. I have not thought about it at all. At first blush, it seems like doing what the quizzers are doing is great because it appears to me that the quizzers always love the coaches quiz at internationals. They all love seeing their coaches up there. And maybe even they love it more when they're airing. Um, <laughs> yeah, true. So, I don't know. I think I think that's a pretty cool experience for... Well, I mean, adult quizzing is going to be almost exclusively people that have already quizzed. I mean, I think there's a ridiculous amount of value to having um, parents of quizzers do some amount of quizzing. Um, or people in the church the quizzers attend do, like, the tiniest amount of quizzing. Because I think it's very, very illuminating for them. Like, even if you gave them eight verses to memorize and did um, a 20 question quiz on that. I think that would have crazy amounts of value. Um, it would, yeah. And I think the key is limiting it. And I, I've seen people do demos like that where they just pick the, you know, five to 10 most knowledgeable Bible verses that people might just know already. Um, because it's not the, I mean, having to do the actual memorization is like a small part of it, but it's just, I don't know. It's a really cool experience to have relatively unable people going through it when um, their children could just quiz circles around them. Um, so I don't know. I, I think in my first hunch would be that adult quizzing doing the same material as um, youth quizzing would be the better idea, but I'm sure there are things I haven't thought of. I tend to agree. I mean, I, there's part of me that kind of likes the idea of saying, but if you're going to quiz for more than the standard rotation, in other words, you're going to be quizzing potentially for 20 or 30 years. Um, wouldn't it be great to expand into books that are left behind? Right. Um, but at the same time, there is a, a tremendous value, I think, in having adults memorize on the same schedule as the youth because I think it provides such an opportunity to have, you know, collaboration. You can have intergenerational quizzing, uh, uh, you know, in terms of invitational meets and so forth. I think there's a lot of wonderful opportunities there. But then, of course, that leads me to question, well, maybe we should expand our rotational cycle, right? Why do we have only the books that we have? Why don't we expand that list to include, you know, 
all of the New Testament, or maybe even expand it to include some of the Old Testament uh, here and there or something like that, right? I mean, these are just ideas that I'm throwing out there, but like, is it, what is, what is the point of having the rotation schedule that we have right now and intentionally skipping certain books of the Bible that I think are phenomenal books, um, certainly on par with the stuff that we memorize, but we, but we exclude for one reason or other. And just because, you know, I think, I think it was really more, somebody sat down and said, well, how many years, what are, what are the total number of years of eligibility plus one and said, great, that's our, that's our set. And we don't need to do anything else and we can just rotate. But I'm like, well, why not? What's the harm in having a 12 year cycle or a 17 year cycle or something like that? Right. Yeah, so I think we've we have the hunch that a lot of the current rule set stems from technological limitations, um, and it could be that things like the mat- eight-year material cycle stem from some other reality of the time that is no longer true. So I think it is useful to have the discussion around what purpose does the material rotation serve? What you know do we do we want to stick with only New Testament um, and decide what will be our first principles when it comes to deciding on specific material, um, length of rotation, um, range of material from shortest to longest? You know, a lot of those questions, you kind of have to first decide what are the criteria that we're going to use when we make this call, right? Mm, right, indeed. Well, one last question here. Um so this is really more, I just thought of this earlier today, but there's a, there's a quizzer in PNW who is uh, this season at the end of the season, moving uh, to the other side of the country and is going to be moving into a uh, location where there is not uh, active uh, quizzing uh, going on, at, at least in, in terms of connections with CMA districts and so forth. And uh, she was asking, well, okay, uh, what do I do? Uh, is there, you know, can I, can I quiz with a district that, that is at least closest to my proximity? And the answer is probably yes. If you can figure out the logistics, I mean, I can't imagine a district turning you away because you live just outside of the, that district's borders. Uh, it's really more, you know, logis- a logistical thing of like, well, you know, you might have to drive a lot to be able to participate and it might be really, really hard to practice with your your quiz team uh, outside of, of meets. But other than that, I mean, it certainly seems possible and reasonable to, you know, at least make inquiries uh, in that direction. Um, but one thing I thought of was, um, and I don't, I haven't quite decided if I think I like this idea or not, <laughs> but so I, I, there's part of me that hates the idea, but I'm kind of throwing it out there because I want, you know, any, any quizzer who... Uh, quizzers are, are our most precious commodity. Uh, and so if there is a quizzer who is wanting to participate in quizzing, I want to bend over backwards to try to figure out a way to ensure that that quizzer can participate. Right. Cause it's just every, every quizzer is precious. Right. So, uh, I, I have, you know, yes, I invented virtual quizzing, but I have grown to, I have a, a very healthy and growing disdain for virtual quizzing and would like it to burn with fire uh, and, and never to come back again. But at the same time, there are some legitimately good things about virtual quizzing from a logistics perspective, right? So AQL would, in, in the sense of what AQL was this past season, would never have happened without virtual. And, and I think that AQL experience was and is a very good thing. And so I'm very glad that that exists, right? So similarly, I'm sort of throwing out this idea of what about putting together a theoretical virtual district uh, for next season. So the idea being that, you know, uh, PNW is is going to be moving to back to in-person quizzing very, very likely so, right? Um, this is not me making an autocratic unilateral you know, proclamation. It's really just more a prediction, but I would say PNW is moving back to in-person and having any sort of hybrid in-person virtual is just a non-starter. Uh, there, there's just no way to make that work. There's no way to make that fair at all. Right. Um, it's just way off the radar. Right. But what if you could, or what if we could, or somebody could create a virtual district where quizzers who are unable to, to participate in quizzing in a 
you know, in-person district can join the virtual district. And as a result of it being virtual, you can basically say, well, it doesn't matter where you are. You can be anywhere in Canada. You can be anywhere in the U.S. It doesn't matter. Well, practically speaking, you could be anywhere on the planet, um, honestly. And you can participate in virtual quizzing. Uh, and maybe given the fact that we're talking about anybody from anywhere, there are enough people who can't find an opportunity to quiz in person who might be able to use virtual quizzing as an option in that regard. Okay, so let's say that that all holds true and that happens. Um, the rationale for that is, well, we're able to provide an opportunity for quizzing for people who can't otherwise participate in quizzing. Um, is it possible? I think it is. Um, the pros of that existing are that it exists. It provides opportunity, but there are cons, right? Um, you're not able to have the same sort of fellowship kind of experience. It's definitely, the meets are not quite as good, I think, in my perspective, as in-person meets, right? There's a lot less of an opportunity for fellowship and that downtime and all that kind of stuff. But then there's the question of integrating with in-person districts, right? Like, how does it work and how would it work? And maybe it's really not a big deal to consider the idea of, let's say there's a district that meets virtually during the course of the season. And as a result of that, some number of people from that district qualify for an in-person internationals. So anyway, that's a lot of theoretical ideas and I just came up with it and I'm not really sure I like what I'm coming up with, but Scott, what do you think? I mean, I think it sounds great. Well, I mean, it's providing people an opportunity to quiz if they want to. And I think if you're worried about um, cannibalism of people who would otherwise quiz in person but are now going to quiz only virtually because that's an option, I would have to imagine that it happens in only uh, really, really small amounts. And even if it does, I think that's fine. Yeah. And I don't care if a virtual-only district got to have a team. I don't Because to me, like getting to have a team in internationals is not necessarily a privilege. Like the rules have been very far flung over the years. And so it's not like, Oh, you have to meet this bar to get to internationals. And so I don't think there's any problem competitively. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I'm my least concern is, is the last one. My, my, my least concern is a, a virtual only district sending a team to an in-person, uh, you know, IBQ. I think, Honestly, what that does is it's probably more demotivating for that district more than anything, because like, imagine never having the opportunity to practice in-person quizzing. And then all of a sudden you're in-person quizzing on benches that you've never used before at internationals. Like that's a huge like shift. Now it's not impossible, right? Because the biggest prep that's necessary is the memorization prep. And you're definitely going to be going through that anyway. Um, so, I mean, I only worry about it as a, as a disservice to the people who are involved in, in virtual quizzing in the virtual district. And even then it's a pretty minor concern. It's more, I'm more worried about, you know, the Pandora's box effect of, you know, once we start down that road, do people think, you know, yeah, I can, I'm totally capable and able to participate with in-person quizzing in whatever district I happen to be in. But you know, those road trips, the time away from, from family, I just don't want to have to deal with that. So I'm going to join the virtual district instead. I actually kind of worry it might be appealing over the long term. Uh, you know, especially from, I mean, from a cost perspective, the costs are way lower, right? I, I think it might be attractive from for those running a program or running um, a district, but I don't know that it would be that attractive at all at the quizzer level. Yeah, true. That's true. But of course, the people running the district and especially the parents are uh, and coaches are going to be heavily swayed for, you know, simple, cheap, easy, um, especially if they weren't quizzers themselves. Right. So. Right. Right. I, I would be more hesitant about that. Yeah. Well, I hope I have not opened Pandora's box by suggesting this on our, you know, rather popular podcast. So um, this is still an idea. Um, it's just and it's really the idea is born from the notion of, you know, there's there's been a number of quizzers who have had to move out of districts and or or even quizzers who are involved in districts. I know some quizzers who are involved in districts that are very large 
geographically speaking, um, also large in terms of quizzers, but they're very large geographically and being able to get to an in-person meet for them is extremely difficult. So, you know, uh, having this kind of option available is, you know, it could be of a, it could be a good thing. I just worry about, you know, um, carving out people who would otherwise participate in what I think is superior, um, a superior experience, uh, with the in-person stuff. So anyway, stuff to think about. Um, and on that bombshell, we should probably close. We're a little bit over time. I wanted to thank everybody for listening. And if you have thoughts on any topics that we have discussed, and especially if you disagree with anything that either Scott or I have talked about on this or any podcast, we would very much like to hear from you. Please email us at uh, iq at cbqz.org. We would love to hear your thoughts or comments or questions or anything related to quizzing. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. Our account is inside quizzing and you can also chat with us in kind of almost near real time on Slack in the inside dash quizzing, uh, channel. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening and thank you, Scott. Thanks everyone. Thanks Griffin. Thanks Griffin.